you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today before the rain arrives later this week. Coming up later this hour, we're going to be talking about noise levels within restaurants, and I'm going to want to hear from you what you think about the way restaurants are designed, some of them seemingly to raise the volume from music that's played, from dishes that are clattering, and from conversations at tables near where we eat. I want to hear from you whether you feel like it, it actually raises the the um, intensity of the experience of the restaurant. Do you like it? Does it make it seem more convivial, more exciting? Or do you find it intrusive and, in fact, make a decision to avoid restaurants that are like that, that are louder because it makes it harder to talk? We'll hear from listeners coming up na- later this hour. But we begin with an update on the data breach affecting many 23andMe users. Back in October, uh, there were uh, many of the users of 23andMe who found that uh, after a breach, their information had been released on the dark web. A class action lawsuit has been filed in San Francisco federal court accusing the company, which is based in the Bay Area, of not notifying users that they had been specifically targeted. The company had disclosed uh, the hack back in the fall, but uh, the lawsuit alleges they neglected to tell Jewish and Chinese customers specifically that their information appeared on specifically targeted lists. These are people whose ancestry is Chinese or Ashkenazi Jewish. Joining us is Lily Hay Newman, senior writer for Wired, focused on the topic of information security. Lily, thank you very much for for being with us. Give us a little background on this, please. What what specifically has happened to 23andMe users uh, who have a background that is Ashkenazi, Jewish, or Chinese? Yeah, good to be here. As part of this larger situation, uh, you know, these two groups, uh, folks of Chinese descent and of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, uh, were affected to a certain degree. Uh, but the the key thing that 23andMe has tried to emphasize and, you know, why they might say, you know, I could speculate that they didn't do more granular notification is they're trying to say that this wasn't really a breach, that it has to do with uh, individual accounts of certain users being compromised and then attackers doing what's called scraping data that would have been available to openly to many users through an opt-in sort of social sharing feature of the uh, platform. So they would want to cast this not as a breach exactly, 
but uh, as a situation where you know attackers sort of went in through the front door of compromising certain accounts and then got data on a much larger uh, population. In practice, though, clearly, you know, people view that as sort of a semantic distinction because the bottom line is data that they wouldn't have wanted out on the dark web and in the hands of attackers did get out. And in what way has the information, uh, particularly about um, those with Ashkenazi Jewish backgrounds, how is that information that was reportedly released on the dark web characterized? Because it seemed like there was some anti-Semitic um, framing around the release of that. So the the, the scraping that happened uh, was through this feature uh, the, the social sharing feature I was describing called the DNA relatives feature. And the uh, the attackers were able to uh, kind of sort people by uh, heritage. So it, we don't know if it was necessarily that they were trying to target those groups, uh, you know, because of a specific ideological motivation, or if it was that those were just two they happened to grab uh, you know, because it was easy to get those uh, populations out of the data set quickly, and then it, it made it perhaps seem more appealing to market the data that way by saying, you know, because they're trying to sell it and make money, uh, you know, by selling it to other criminals. So maybe it was to try to make it seem sexier, basically, or, you know, like more appealing, like, oh, we have data on these, uh, you know, particular uh heritage groups but it could also be that there was an ideological motivation and you know that there was like an anti-semitic or anti-chinese uh reason that they stole and marketed this data in particular i was just looking um in in the lawsuit that was filed it claims that a hacker who calls himself Gollum uh used an avatar of Gollum of lord lord of the rings um, mm -hmm. leaked the personal data of more than a million 23andMe users with Jewish ancestry on an online forum. Uh, the lawsuit claims that it used by cyber criminals. And then returning a couple of weeks later, um, this hacker goes by Gollum, according to the lawsuit, said he had data about, quote, wealthy families serving Zionism that he was offering for sale. And so that's why it was sort of wondering in the way of specifically um, making that reference if that, again, if this is accurate, this is in the filing of the lawsuit, that's all we know, but uh, whether that might be it. And then, fam you know, people who, um, families are Ashkenazi Jewish, some of them in the lawsuit are expressing concern that they could be targeted because of their background. Right. And whether, you know, it's an earnest ideological intent or, again, sort of like preying on, you know, these are very hot topics, of course, preying on it, that concern about being targeted is real. Anytime data is curated in a certain way, it makes it easier for uh, actors online to, you know, just go to that data quickly and use it in uh, targeting, whether it's just sort of scam targeting that is uh, tailored to a certain group, 
or whether it's targeting for an ideological motivation. We're talking with Wired senior writer Lily Hay Newman. Uh, her work focuses on information security. We also welcome back to the program from UCLA, Professor of Information Studies, Ramesh uh, Srinivasan. Professor Srinivasan, good to have you with us again. Um, what's your take on the filing of this lawsuit against 23andMe? Pleased to be back with you, Larry, and um, on the program. Um, well, I'm deeply, I'm deeply disturbed uh, by the specific targeting of particular demographic groups that are part of the that are that are that is sort of featured as part of this breach. You know, when we spoke about this initially, um, you know, well over a month ago, we didn't re- we we thought it was sort of an indiscriminate data breach. We didn't realize that there were these sort of specific targets that are associated with such. Um, note that both these groups, um, Ashkenazi Jewish peoples and peoples of uh, Chinese descent have been, you know, the target of a number of conspiracy theories, including um, related to COVID. So I am concerned uh, that the breach could actually uh, perpetuate um, populations that are, I would say, in a vulnerable situation when it comes to these specific uh, issues. Um, I think it's it's absurd uh, that for 23andMe to claim that the breach was sort of uh, due to our own, you know, personal data being compromised and therefore linked data being compromised when we, you know, used various sorts of quizzes or, you know, surveys and so on, right? This, this is very, very similar to what Facebook said initially with the Cambridge Analytica uh, data scandal, because what basically occurred was some of our individual data were compromised and then related uh, folks that were connected to us, you know, in our sort of social networks, their data were also compromised because we we played a, a quiz <laughs> that Facebook willfully offered to us, right? That's part of Facebook's mm-hmm. business model to accommodate all these other platforms. So it's it's absurd and semantic, as as uh, the report, as your colleague, as our colleagues just said. Um, to to uh, most breaches occur through the compromise of one an individual's personal information, which then cascades to other folks that are connected to that person. Um, that's how phishing attacks occur. That's sometimes how malware software works. Um, these, these are the ways in to mass data breaches, which are, you know, as we talked about before, are likely to be the norm unless major steps are put into place to try to correct this, which I, I think need to happen now. I wonder, you know, looking at 23andMe or at Ancestry, for example, which are, yeah. they're the two big um, companies in this space, whether because of this ability to group people according to their backgrounds, right. that makes this, you know, particularly vulnerable for people to to use the services. Do you think that, that this is going to make people more reluctant to do this kind of genealogical um, information gathering? I'm hopeful that, you know, all of us have greater, can can sort of have exercise even greater discretion, though I don't really want to put any of the onus on all of us who want to use these services that, mind you, most of us end up paying for with the assurances that such data would be protected with extreme privacy, right? And there are a number of things that could be done. 23andMe does not need to keep the data that it, you know, that it uh, orders and, and sort of uh, analyzes to give us a sense of our own genetic ancestry. It doesn't need to retain such data. It also doesn't need to segment or sort of partition such data according to such uh, demographic categories, at least on its end, you know? So it's there's just a lot of things that could be done, but that's the thing. I think we're staring into an abyss here because we're basically blindly trusting these corporate tech platforms 
to sort of protect our lives and we're offered various services that sound fun and interesting and insightful, like understanding our genetic ancestry, but it comes at great cost because um, I don't think I, I don't think we should we should be uh, turning our 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 sort of blind faith over <laughs> any longer to these to to third party tech platforms um, and also also this is also an issue when it comes to state data state information too right information we might provide to government agencies as well so I think it's extremely important we have uh, strong data rights and data privacy legislation on a federal level. We're talking with UCLA professor of information studies, Ramesh Srinivasan, joining us to talk about uh, the class action lawsuit that's been filed on behalf of those of Ashkenazi Jewish and Chinese ancestry uh, whose information was reportedly released on the dark web and and specifically related to uh, their background as Ashkenazi Jewish or Chinese and the concerns that that's raised from some 23andMe uh, customers. Is this something, Professor, that need that I mean needs to be legislated, or is this something that the market could respond to? Could you have another company that does this kinds of ancestral research or D, you know uh, DNA study and and doesn't keep the data and doesn't do the kind of partitioning um, based on background that we're seeing here and and that then people could flock to that if they want that additional degree of security. It's a great question. I mean, I, I, I hope for and wish for a much more competitive market with a number of, you know, options for us all, you know, some of which really, uh, many of which, you know, are really about uh, privacy, yet also providing us the service at the same time. But I don't think that that's unfortunately, the, realistically, the point we're at when it comes to most tech platforms, because I consider 23andMe also a technology platform, right? We provide data to it. In this case, it's you know, very personal, intimate, gene- you know, genetic DNA data, and then they do what they wish for us, right? Um, and in the case of many big tech platforms, it's sort of too late because they have achieved what we call network effects. They, you know, it's really hard to imagine, you know, an alternative globally, for example, to like Facebook, meaning Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, right? So with 23andMe, they are a dominant market player. They're very well-funded, um, you know, their founder, was personally connected to Sergey Brin, the co-founder. Uh, I think it's ex ex partner of um, the, the the former founder of Google. So you know, it's it's hard for me to see uh, that occurring on a sort of quote unquote market correction basis when the market's so highly skewed and asymmetric in this space. In my in my opinion, um, as far as <laughs> our fe- federal regulators, I mean, I think the state we have acted upon some privacy issues. I think we need to continue to do that considering this particular scandal. But on the federal level, my my biggest challenge, my biggest issue is that um, a number of our policymakers um, have very different reasons for not being happy with the status quo, but don't seem to be able to come together on some basic common sense uh, privacy protections. Like, for example, you know, it, we should just recognize that almost anything we do these days leave what we call digital footprints or data, our data datafication, you know. And so that should, whenever, whoever is collecting such should legally not be authorized to keep that data for some period of time as appropriate for that activity, right? Um, data should not be aggregated and brought together. We still have data brokers who were used in the Cambridge Analytica case. So there's just a ton of things we can do. 
I just uh, really hope that our legislators can come together despite their sort of partisanship um, and try to change this situation because the onus should not be on all of us as citizens or consumers. Thank you so much, Professor Srinivasan. We appreciate you joining us. And our thanks to Lily A. Newman of Wired, senior writer for the publication. Information security is her beat. And our thanks to Professor Ramesh Srinivasan, professor of information studies at UCLA. Coming up, we continue with our series of interviews with candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Joining us in just a minute will be Nathan Hockman, who's a criminal law attorney, a former federal prosecutor, former president of the L.A. Ethics Commission. And you might uh, recall his name because he was most recently a candidate for state attorney general in California. He was the Republican nominee. Continue our coverage on the DA's race when we come back in just one minute on Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We're doing interviews with all 12 of the candidates. Should they agree to come in and spend approximately 15 minutes with us talking about their candidacy? Uh, George Gascon, the incumbent, will be with us later this week. We've heard from, gosh, I'm guessing probably around uh, eight of the candidates to this point. Joining us today is Nathan Hockman, who's a former federal prosecutor, is a criminal law attorney, former president of the L.A. Ethics Commission, and he was the Republican nominee in the race for state attorney general in the last election. Mr. Hockman, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me on. So, Nathan, let's let's start with what made you decide uh, to run for this. You ran as a Republican. This is a nonpartisan office, of course. You ran as a Republican for state attorney general. We haven't had a Republican statewide office holder in many years now. What what made you decide to run in a pretty liberal county like Los Angeles for the DA's job? Certainly. So I'm running in the uh, for the DA position as an independent, a registered independent. Because I believe a DA needs to be fiercely independent. I think when a DA enacts effectively a political agenda or party affiliation in making the decisions over people's liberty, instead of just relying on the evidence and the law, that's when a DA is not doing their job, that they're not actually upholding the law. I was actually an independent Democrat for 20 years, an independent Republican for 20 years, and have re-registered in this nonpartisan position because I want the voters to understand that I truly believe, and it starts with me, 
that I will be an independent DA uh, moving politics from the decisions unlike the way George Gascon has proceeded. Uh, you used German. I don't want to take a lot of time, but you said you were an independent Democrat. You know, what does that mean? And an independent Republican. What do you mean by that? That I basically, when I was voting, I voted for the person over the party. That I basically looked to see which was the most qualified candidate, not necessarily which party they were part okay. of. When I was a Democrat, when I was a Republican, I ran as a moderate Republican, as I'm sure you're aware, someone who's actually been pro-choice their whole life, I didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016 or 20. All this is public that I revealed during the last campaign. Uh, but we'll enforce the law. What George Gascon has done is he decided to enact blanket criminal, pro-criminal policies where he says up front to the criminals that there are certain crimes and certain criminals I will not prosecute. Yet he takes an oath to, to and swears to uphold all the laws, not just the laws he likes. If I take that oath, I will uphold all the laws. Well, where does prosecutorial discretion come in then? Because certainly with uh, the wide range uh, and volume of cases that a DA's office gets, they're going to make decisions to prosecute in some cases, not in others. And there is that discretion, even though laws are on the books. So in what way do you see him uh, not exercising discretion in a way that's that upholds the law. Certainly. And I've been a prosecutor. I've been on a, basically a prosecutor and a U.S. assistant attorney general for 10 years and on the defense side for 20 years. George Gascon, as you know, has never actually personally prosecuted a case or defended a case. What he did when he came into office is he issued blanket policies. And by blanket, it means you have absolutely no discretion. So he told the 900 prosecutors that he now is in charge of that they have absolutely no discretion in nine different areas of prosecution. So in other words, he's removed individualized analysis, which I will bring back to the decision making in everything dealing with juvenile crimes, dealing with enhancements for guns, dealing with actually prosecutors attending parole hearings with victims. He's enacted blanket policies, which I view on both sides of the extreme, both the blanket policies of mass incarceration and now Gascon's blanket policies of de-incarceration as the wrong path. We're talking with Nathan Hockman, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. You have experience in the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, the uh, central uh, region, which includes Los Angeles, a federal prosecutor. You don't have experience within a uh, county uh, DA's office. A number of the candidates have that experience. So what would you say to those who might say, well, Gascon was an outsider being in law enforcement, San Francisco DA, but not the L.A. County, and, and this is a chance for someone within the office to hold the position? Certainly. So I'm an outsider in one sense, in the sense that I've never been a state prosecutor, but I've been a federal prosecutor and I ran a litigating division of the U.S. Department of Justice uh, with a presidential appointment and unanimous Senate confirmation. But I have been involved in the state criminal process for over 20 years on the defense side and understand the, the mechanisms in the state criminal process as well as anyone. But I have the leadership experience and the independence that I can bring to that office, coupled with 34 years of criminal justice experience that no other candidate can bring. What is that leadership experience? So it's both in the public and the private realms. On the public side, I led the U.S. Department of Justice's tax division, a $100 million budget dealing with Congress, the U.S. Attorney's offices, the U.S. Department of Justice, and being in charge of 350 lawyers 
litigating cases around the entire nation. On the private side, I was the head of two major international law firms' government investigations practices and was the president of the L.A. City Ethics Commission. I'm also the co-founder of the L.A. Sheriff's Foundation. So I've demonstrated proven leadership skills in a way no other candidate can, can even touch on both the public and the private realms. Nathan Ackman joining us, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. You mentioned about enhancements. You would prosecute gun enhancements in the commission of crimes. There are also gang enhancements. There are a variety of different ones that have not been consistently prosecuted uh, under the current DA. So w- what about other enhancements? Would you use gang enhancements rather routinely or, or selectively or not at all? Larry, I'll go back to the concept you brought up earlier of individualized analysis. No blanket policies. You look at every case as an individual case. You look at the defendant, the criminal background. You look at the crime committed. You look at the impact on the victim and the evidence that exists. This is what prosecutors used to do until Gascon came into office, and I would bring back. So, yes, if there is evidence that shows that a particular gun was used during a robbery— I won't pretend that it didn't exist and won't charge it. Same thing if someone's involved with a gang. The law provides for a gang enhancement. The prosecutors will look at the law, they'll look at the evidence, and make an individualized determination in every single case. This is the way prosecutors used to operate before George Gascon, and I would go back to this traditional way. Where is the reform in what you're talking about? Because Gascon was elected as a reformer, someone to bring significant change to the office, priorities in what's prosecuted, efforts to end mass incarceration and uh, to try and, and address the issue of racial and ethnic differences in prosecution. So in, in what all the things you're talking about in prosecutions, where, where are reforms, if at all? Certainly. Here's where the reforms are, and here's to bring the sensibility of being a defense lawyer for 20 years that no other candidate, including Gascon, has ever been. I am well aware that the government can overreach, whether it's people of color, low-income communities that the government can overreach. I've actually defended it in court, personally, and no one other candidate can do this. I would enact the racial blind charging decisions that actually the state of California passed as a law, and Gascon has refused so far to enact. I would actually enact that on day one. It actually has to be enacted by January 1st, 2025. It can be enacted before. There's three counties in California that have already done it. LA has not done it. I would do it on day one. Also, I would focus on rehabilitation for people who are actually in prison. Gascon has failed the community. He wants these prisoners, these violent and serious criminals, to get out of prison. But he has not given them a skill set while they're in prison so that when they get out, they won't be part of the 50% recidivism rate to find them back in prison within two years. One of the programs that I advocate strongly is called The Last Mile. It's thelastmile.org. What it does is it teaches coding skills to prisoners while they're in prison gets them a certificate to do websites, for instance, helps them get their first job when they get out of prison, thelastmile.org has a 0% recidivism rate. We need to bring programs like that into the L.A. County jails to give these prisoners a chance so when they actually get out of prison, they have a skill set to both be productive citizens, support their families, and not go back. And that's something the DA's office has the wherewithal to implement in jails? That's something that the DA's office can work with the L.A. Sheriff's Department if it's a priority. For George Gascon, he talks the big game, but he doesn't walk the walk. 
I will actually work with the sheriff's department to bring the rehabilitation skills into the prisons because I don't want to see these folks commit crimes again. In fact, the entire point of criminal punishment is not to fill the prisons. It's to deter people from committing the crimes in the first place. And if they know that I will fairly and enforcely in, 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 fairly uh, and efficiently enforce the lines, and there, there will be no moving of the lines like George Gascon. I will enforce those lines. The goal is to deter the criminals from committing that crime in the first place. Nathan Hockman with us, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Let's talk about Proposition 47, which changed the dollar threshold for theft. $950 under is, is a misdemeanor. There haven't been prosecutions consistently on those. What would you do about misdemeanor offenses and prosecution of property crimes? So Proposition 47 actually t- changed two classes of crimes, both drug crimes, misdeme- it turned certain felony possession crimes into misdemeanors, and did the same with certain theft crimes. Let me sp- speak for a moment about the drug crimes, because it not only turned misdemeanor possession of marijuana into a misdemeanor, but it did the same thing with fentanyl, heroin, ecstasy, methamphetamine. And what we've seen is that it has gutted effectively the drug courts. The drug courts were a, a very effective option for courts to order someone into a rehabilitation program that if they did it and successfully completed it, they wouldn't go to state prison. When you remove the felony aspect from these highly addictive, dangerous drugs, you've gutted the entire drug court program. I would do my best to see if we could bring something like that back. On the theft crimes, the problem is repeat offenders. Right now, you can steal just under $950 every single day, and they don't aggregate the amounts. I believe that one of the ways we could modify Proposition 47 to deal with repeat offenders is to actually have an aggregation type of statute that the state legislator can can actually advocate. There's a bipartisan bill up there now, and I would actually help support that bipartisan bill. Nathan Hockman with his candidate for L.A. County District Attorney. Quality of life crimes also are not being prosecuted, disturbing the peace and variety of different things. Uh, Often uh, these are associated with people living on the street in um, psychological distress or addicted to drugs. What would your approach be to uh, those offenses? Well, again, as you well know, over 70% of our homeless population either suffers from a serious mental illness, substance abuse disorder, or both. You have to basically deal with these the root causes of these problems to deal with the quality of life crimes. On the criminal enforcement level, I'm not going to turn my head away and pretend these people didn't commit crimes. If they did commit crimes, they will be prosecuted for the crimes committed. But I'll also work to empower the care courts. These are the new courts that have been set up by Gavin Newsom, uh, which are dedicated to dealing with people with serious mental illness and giving them a residential program to hopefully get the treatment that they need. They don't actually have that for substance abuse, drug addiction programs. There's a pilot project going on right now in Yolo County to deal with the same type of residential placement. I would seek to bring that pilot project to L.A. County. George Gascon could have done this. He has failed to do this, and he's condemned 
people with drug addictions to basically live on the streets, to steal, to feed the addiction, and to keep remaining to keep harming our community. I think the concern is, though, with prosecuting the so-called quality of life crimes, you're going to end up with people who've been living on the streets, living in jails, and that essentially becomes their, their new address instead of on the street. Right now, the largest homeless shelter in Los Angeles County are our jails. That's already a fact. The care court idea was to actually order them into residential um, treatment that will actually provide a bed, and now they're providing funding for it. And it's it's online now in 2024, and hopefully they will build on that program so that judges will actually have a third option other than ordering them back to the streets, which is incredibly inhumane, or putting them in jail, which had, does nothing for their mental illness, now they'll have that third option. We're real tight on time, but I do want to get your reaction to, under uh, Gascon's leadership of this office, many more law enforcement officers have been prosecuted um, for alleged misconduct, including uh, officer and deputy-involved shootings. Your response to how that's been done? That's been done in- incredibly poorly. In, in the sense that Gascon has not, ironically, when reviewing cases to, to go after police officers, he's not reversed Jackie Lacey and other DA's decisions in the overwhelming majority of cases, though he said he would. Instead, he's appointed a chief of staff, Tiffany Blacknell, who's actually publicly worn a shirt that says the police are trained to kill us. Gascon is sending a message to both the police and to his prosecutors by appointing a woman who actually has never been a prosecutor and has only been a deputy public offender who's called the police barbarians in an occupying force publicly that the message is I'm more interested in prosecuting the police than partnering with them. I view it the opposite way. We need to partner with the police to deal with the incredibly difficult criminal issues that our county faces. Obviously, if a police officer crosses the line, they will absolutely be prosecuted. And I'm the only person that has ever prosecuted a police officer. And we will bring back safety to this community. Uh, In closing, 22nd, just closing comment for why uh, you think our listeners should vote for you. Thank you. You, Basically, the listeners should be voting for someone who has 34 years of criminal justice experience as a prosecutor, a U.S. assistant attorney general, and a defense attorney, president of the L.A. City Ethics Commission, someone who has proven leadership experience, and someone who's going to be independent and get politics out of the DA's office. George Gascon has showed us what happens with our safety when that isn't done, and I will bring back common sense safety. Nathan Hockman, thank you for joining us and talking about your candidacy for L.A. County District Attorney. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Nathan Hockman, one of 12 candidates. We've invited all of them to join us. Uh, Coming up, we're going to have Superior Court Judge Craig Mitchell, criminal defense attorney Dan Kapelovitz. Uh, They'll be with us next week. Uh, Retired L.A. County Superior Court Judge David Milton declined our invitation, so I guess we're going to have 11 of the 12. It's Air Talk on L.A.S. 89.3. I want to hear from you about the North Noise level of restaurants, does it impede or excite your experience of visiting a restaurant? We're at 866-893-5722. I need to hear from you right away. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Support. 
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The journalists in the LAist newsroom work for you. I'm LAist higher education correspondent Adolfo Guzman Lopez. What the students are speaking about it is it's extremely valid. My reporting is about how students use higher education toward a better life. For the first time since being in this campus, it made me feel unsafe. Struggling through challenges like ethnicity, class, poverty, and family pressures. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. It's a chance for us to talk restaurants. I always love being able to do it, but you know, one of the things that I think is challenging for some of us is carrying on conversations in loud restaurants. And um, you know, not surprisingly, I like to talk over dinner or lunch, and it can be challenging to do so. It's one of the reasons that I typically will choose outside over indoors if that's an option. But I'd like to hear from you because clearly there are a lot of designers of restaurants and restaurateurs who who feel like it makes a restaurant buzzier, more exciting. People will be more apt to go there if there is kind of a background noise of the conversations, of music that's playing, even the sound of the kitchen preparing the meals. So I'd like to hear from you what you seek out volume-wise in a restaurant. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Let's start with Greg in Sherman Oaks. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. Hey, Larry. Yeah, um, I wanted to um, convey a story that I heard when I lived in New York. Uh, we used to go to a Brazilian restaurant downtown, and the, the, I made friends with a woman who owned it, and she and her partners owned three, as it turned out, restaurants in Manhattan. And finally, I mean, we used to go at 8 o'clock at night, you know, and then we got we had to go earlier and earlier and earlier because it got louder and louder and louder. And I said, what's going on? I mean, this is impossible. She said, well, it increases turnover. The partners want us to keep the music loud because people can't stand it for more than an hour and a half. <laughs> I had no idea. Wow. Think about it. Yeah. And um, so I went, uh, okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's like I don't go to restaurants that are loud. And the older we get, of course, our hearing doesn't allow us to isolate voices as well as it did when we were younger. Yeah. Um, I, I've but, always uh, had that bias, though, even when I was young and had fully intact hearing. Um, I, I did. And instead of it feeling exciting to me, it, it it sort of raises a feeling of chaos within me. It's funny. I like to be settled. I've always kind of liked the old school booth oriented 
Um, I just, that, but I'm someone as a kid who hung out in the library, so that tells you my bias. Greg, thank you so much. 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Jonah in Pasadena emailed, I hate noisy restaurants. I won't go back to a restaurant that's noisy. If I walk into one, the music's too loud. I'll ask them to turn it down. If they say they can't, I leave. The, quote, industrial interiors with concrete floors and no sound absorption in the ceiling has only made things worse. Thank you, Jonah. I'd like to hear from restaurateurs, or if you're someone who designs restaurants, how do you take sound into account? 866-893-5722. Are there things that you as a restaurant owner have done to respond to the sound within your restaurant? As I recall several years ago when we did this topic, we actually had a restaurant owner who said um, that, the design of the restaurant ended up being noisier, as I recall, than he had had planned, and so uh, and and there were some customer complaints. So he actually spent money mitigating the noise, coming up with sound dampening features in the restaurant to respond to that. So if you're someone who's in the restaurant business. I'd be really interested in hearing from you how you take noise into account and what feedback do you get from your your, uh, customers about the noise level, 866-893-5722. Kathleen in Echo Park said, I just made a short film that takes place in a restaurant. One of the most important things we had to do was to get the sound of a restaurant accurately. To be honest, I think a lot of people don't notice that there's a lot of ambient sound around them when they're dining. Kathleen, thank you for that. And Fred in Burbank said, I detest loud music in restaurants. I won't go to them. I think restaurants are trying to be as noisy as possible because they think people like it, but I certainly don't. 866-893-5722. I actually know someone, uh, a family member, who who likes restaurants that are noisier because it it makes her feel more alive. It's it's the it's stimulating. It makes her feel like she's in the happening place. It's exciting. There's stuff going on. People are gathering, and it makes her feel connected to the world through that experience. And and I wonder if that's something either consciously or at a subliminal level that's going on because there are so many restaurants that are really loud that are also really popular. Clearly, not everyone is voting with their feet and saying they don't want to be in that kind of of an environment. Let's talk with Lisa in Laverne. Good to have you with us, Lisa. What's your view on the sound of restaurants? Hi, Mary. Love your show. Listen every day. Just want to let you know. I appreciate that. I do think that there's, yeah, I think there's a sweet middle, right? So I don't want it to be so loud where I have to lean across the table to have a conversation or shout my order to the waitress or waiter at the same time i don't want it so quiet where if i'm having dinner with my husband and we're venting about our children's like potty training issues i don't want to disturb you know people dining next to me. So i think there's like this <laughs> balance great. of noise where i want privacy within the conversation to be shielded by the noise but i don't want it to be so overwhelming where i can't even have you know the conversation you know without yelling and you know straining my voice so i think there definitely is a middle 
That's, I love it, the Goldilocks uh, volume level. Lisa, thank you so much. And, yeah, that's an excellent point because if if it's completely quiet, anything you say is going to be heard by surrounding tables. 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. I would love to hear from you if you are a restaurateur. That would be great. Uh, and, and just to share how you've looked at the issue of sound within your establishment. Uh, And if you're a restaurant patron who likes it being lively, who likes having more sound, maybe not deafening, but likes it, you know, to sound like there's stuff going on, please share that with us. 866-893-5722. We have a listener, Kay, in Seal Beach, who who does enjoy the noise in restaurants. We'll be talking with her when we come back. 866-893-5722. We also have a restaurateur from Beverly Grove who's going to be sharing with us how she considers noise in her establishment. We'll be back in just one minute. The volume in restaurants, whether it's music, whether it's hard services reflecting conversations, kitchen sounds, dishes being cleared from tables, I want to hear from you what you think about uh, the level of noise in restaurants. Kay in Seal Beach, I understand you you like to have a restaurant that's uh, noise lively. Share with us how you feel about that. I do, Larry. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, I love, I'm 77 years old, and I absolutely love to go to a noisy restaurant. It makes me feel like I'm surrounded by families and couples and people having a good time. I like hearing the, the clink of the glasses and the rattle of the china. I just love it. It makes me feel like everyone's having a good time. If I want to have a, you know, a, a business lunch or a quiet romantic dinner, I'll find those restaurants. They're usually the smaller, you know, don't have as many tables or anything. But I, I just think it's like a party going out all and right. listening to people have fun. Yeah, and, and does it raise your mood, Kay, would you say? Because I think for people like yourself and the family member I was talking about, it makes her happier. Do you feel like it's a mood elevator for you? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. It just it, it elevates every all your senses. All it's right. Just, it's just fun. I love it. My my family laughs at me a lot, but they go <laughs> along with me. Kay, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your call. Let's talk with Nora, who was the co-owner of Greek Eats in the Beverly Grove District. Nora, thank you for being with us. So uh, how how do you handle the volume within your restaurant? Hi, Larry. Well, we've just opened Greek Eats, but for 35 and a half years we ran, my husband Dimitri and I, Le Petit Greek on Larchmont. And it's an interesting thing, like your like that your callers are saying that it's a it's an energy, and it's really when you start to look at is this really an introvert who's going out for a quiet meal while they read their book, or someone who's going out with friends and wants that kind of vibration and energy. A lot of it has to do with informing the restaurateurs, like hey, can we have a quiet table, or where there's a group of us and we're just you know we we can't wait to see each other. We're socializing. Can we have a table you know where we can be a little bit more raucous. That's a really important thing is to let your restaurant know. And also for restaurateurs, it's in the design of your restaurant. If you had a a lot of metal and wood and you don't have a lot of things that absorb sound like cushions 
or other um, things, then, you know, that can affect noise. But it's really getting that balance right where it, it feels alive or not. I mean, sometimes you have situations where you have a crying baby and most people are respectful enough to say, you know, well, I'll hold them, I'll feed them. If they don't quiet down, usually one parent is out walking them with a stroller while the other parent stays and eaten. There are times over the years where we've had to say, you know, would you like me to, um, would you like to take a stroll and, you know, uh, you know, see if that helps or, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and we'll be happy to heat up your food for you. You know, things That's like very that. Nice. You yeah. try to be as delicate as you can as possible. Um, but, um, and your, your music should always be background music in a restaurant. It Thank should you. never be yes. something that, you know. It's too, it's too overwhelming. It's not a club. Nora, thank you so much. Uh, Nora of Greek Eats in Beverly Grove. Tony in West Plains, Missouri, I understand you have three restaurants. So how do you handle music and, and reflected sound and all that in your establishments? Well, unlike you, I, as a customer, always hated loud places, and I wouldn't go back to them. So I was really conscious about making it acoustically comfortable and paying attention to the crowd of what type of music to play. And there's just a fine line between what's too loud and what's not loud enough. If people are whispering, then you turn it up. You know, you don't want people to be whispering because there's the music's so low. And same with temperature and lighting, you know, it's just, there's just this fine line, I think. And part of it is just reading the crowd, the time of the day, you know, late at night might turn it up and, you know. Yeah. So you, you have to be who's there. Yeah, and responding to it at all times. You really have to be attentive then, the manager or the owner to 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 deal with that at all times. So especially if you have a diverse crowd like we did, you know, we're in a fairly small town and well, really small town. <laughs> and you know, so you have a real mixture of older people, younger people, and yeah. it's not like we just attracted one type of clientele. So you know, you really, I always tried to just respond. We played a lot of Frank Sinatra music, and most generations like that. Yeah, that's that's not going to offend people. Tony, thank you so much from West Plains, Missouri, uh, owner of three restaurants. Uh, let's talk with Rain in Mar Vista. I understand you're a restaurateur, Rain, so please uh, tell us how you handle noise and volume music in your restaurant. Yes, uh, good morning. Um, uh, well, yeah, so I've been owning Cafe Laurent in Mar Vista. Well, we were in Culver City for 23 years. We just moved to a new location. So it has been very, um, you know, sometimes it's difficult because, as she mentioned, um, it's all about the crowd. Sometimes we have elderly people. So as an owner, I work so hard to myself. It's one thing that I do take it very serious. So it feels too loud and I hear you know, obviously, everybody, when it's, especially when it's busy, if it's too busy, I try to, like, lower it down so it doesn't become, you know, out of control, you know, the, the, the noise. But a lot of times, it really kind of, you know, I try to keep it where it's medium for everybody, and it really depends on the crowd. As she mentioned, we do have, like, a mixed crowd. We have Venice people, uh, Venice Beach people mm-hmm. that are younger, and so on the weekend, which is brunch, and so it really depends. But I do, I do walk because of the party can get louder, as opposite of the inside. So it really depends on the on the customers. Yeah, uh, Ryan, thank you so much, Mar Vista. I appreciate it, Jeremy. In Mar Vista, I understand you also have a restaurant. Uh, real briefly, please, how do you find um, the sweet spot or or uh, curate the sound within your restaurant? Yeah, first of all, go Mar Vista, huh? Two in a row. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Restaurant capital. So, 
the, the issue is exactly the issue is that there's a multiplier effect upon music volume. If the music is too loud, then people speak louder. And then in order to get their point across, other people speak louder, making a larger volume of the room as a whole. And you can put in sound paneling, but it's a really hard thing to get right. It's a moving target depending on whether it's six o'clock on a Tuesday or, you know, eight o'clock on a Saturday. And, you know, music and lighting make vibe. And we've all been to restaurants where they either are too serious to play music, so it's quiet and feels like you're in a dentist's office, <laughs> or they play music very quietly. And I just think, you know, fun is a major ingredient to going out and enjoying yourself. And, and I think, you know, it's hard to get it just right, but it's a constant work in progress. Jeremy, I understand you have three restaurants, is it? And quickly, the names of those? I have two. One's called Kobe's oh. in Santa Monica, and then there's a Mezcal Tequila Bar, also called Linnea in Santa Monica. Sounds good. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much. Rob in the Mid-Wilshire District says, if you have an expense account, you're taking an important client out, you want to go somewhere noisy or somewhere you can schmooze, you don't take important clients out to loud places. Marvin in Culver City says, I can't do loud restaurants. I've had a concussion. The stimulation is too much, but I found if you wear earplugs, you can actually hear people talking at your table better. And Jody in Toluca Lake says, I can't stand the loudness and chaos. I feel like I'm the weirdo asking the waiter if they can take the edge off and turn it down a bit. Thank you all for your terrific calls. More to come in the second hour of Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you're having a terrific day. Thank you for all the calls and emails. And again, I, I can't necessarily get to all of them on the air, but I read all of them, I assure you. And uh, they help me then when we deal with any related topics in the future. I have your thought right there uh, in my head to be able to call on it. So thank you so much. Coming up later this hour, a fascinating biography of the Ukrainian president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. The book by Time magazine correspondent Simon Schuster is titled The Showman Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. We'll talk with Schuster coming up later this hour. But we begin the second hour of Air Talk with a look at a recent Pew Research Center survey about parents and their adult 
children. And it found that tr- a tremendous level of connectedness between uh, adult kids and their parents when it comes to, to being in contact, regularly texting or talking. And it also shows a fair amount of financial intertwinement as well. Joining us from Pew Research Center, the Director of Social Trends Research, Kim Parker. Kim, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. So this is a a survey of 18 to 34-year-olds, a couple of surveys, actually. Uh, One of the findings is 73% of um, young adult uh, children say that they talk on the phone with uh, parents at least a few times a week. 54, or I'm sorry, 73% text. 54% say they talk on the phone multiple times a week. Do we have any historical data on that to see if that's been consistent over the years? We don't, unfortunately. I really wish we did, but we didn't. These were all new questions, brand new surveys, so we weren't able to compare it to the past. Um, So those seem like high numbers, but we're not sure if they're that different from the past, obviously texting and FaceTiming and those things weren't really even an option in the past. So I do think that technology change has, you know, facilitated some of these close connections, but there's a lot more to it as well. Just it, it seems the nature of the relationship is is very close, as you pointed out, on multiple levels. I remember when I was in college and you didn't know if your parents were going to be home. And so we sort of had a loose appointment when I'd call and fill them in what was going on because, you know, we didn't have cell phones. And, and you know, you'd want to, if you were going to make the time to connect, to try and make sure you're, you're there to take the call. Times have certainly changed. Um, what what is the response of young adults to this level of involvement with their parents this level of connection do they generally like it that's a great question we were very curious about that ourselves and what we found was that they're very content with the level of involvement we asked them do you think your parents are too involved not involved enough or about as involved as you'd like them to be and 69% said they were about as involved as they'd like them to be very few said that they thought their parents were too involved in their lives. And uh, is there a gender difference between mom and dads on on the level with which they connect with adult kids? Yes, there were some really interesting gender differences. Um, One was around connection. So moms are more likely to be in frequent contact with their kids, whether it's sending text messages, talking on the phone, even seeing them in person. Kids are moms also are more likely to say that their kids come to them for advice than dads are, which was interesting. And then the young adults were more likely to say that they can be their true selves around their moms than around their dads. So those were some of the kind of interesting gender highlights. And then the emotional connections between moms and daughters really stood out as well. Yeah, and elaborate on that, please. I think anecdotally, so many of us see that, that there is really no other relationship quite the same as mothers and daughters. But how is that quantified in the survey? Yeah, it was really interesting. We kind of asked both ways. We asked moms how often their children come to them for advice, but then we also asked, or not for advice, for emotional support. And then we asked kids, how often do your parents turn to you for emotional support? And, you know, Overall, it's, they don't say, oh, my parents are always leaning on me for emotional support, but they are more likely to say that their moms lean on them in that way than their dads. So by 35% versus 12%. And that's all, all young adults. And when we broke it down by gender, we found that daughters were more likely than sons to say that their mom relies on them 
in this way. And 44% of daughters said that their moms rely on them a great deal or a fair amount for emotional support. So that was a pretty high number. Only yeah. 25% of sons said the same. That's so interesting. We're talking with Pew Research Center's Director of Social Trends Research, Kim Parker. We're talking about a recently published Pew study. It's it's two surveys of 18 to 34-year-olds the center has conducted, looking at a variety of aspects of connectedness between young adults and their parents. And one of the most interesting findings is on financial connectedness. Fewer than half of young adults say they're completely financially independent from their parents. You know, but that's particularly not surprising because it starts at 18. So a lot of those are going to be students still in school. But um, you'd expect as they get older toward and past 30, maybe that would be less likely. Um, But it's it's interesting to see that the majority in that age range do uh, get some sort of financial support from their parents. Do we have a sense of how much? We do. Yeah. And I think the point you just made is very important because we we, this is a broad age range, 18 to 34. So obviously there's so many different things going on in terms of milestones and life events over that, over the course of that age range. So we did break it down into smaller chunks. We looked at 18 to 24 year olds, 25 to 29 year olds, and 30 to 34 year olds. And that, that first finding that you highlighted that 45% of young adults say they're completely financially independent, which is less than half. When we looked at it among the 30 to 34-year-olds, um, 67% said they were completely financially independent. So that leaves about a third of 30 to 34-year-olds 30 saying they're not completely financially independent, which is a pretty big number. Mm-hmm. And in terms of what that looks like, um, 44% of all the young adults we interviewed said that they received financial help from their parents in the past year. And again, that varies by age as well. The most most of that help is coming for household expenses like groceries or rent and for things like cell phones and subscription streaming services, which I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah. So that would be myself. (laughs) Yeah. Password sharing, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'd love to hear from listeners. I'd like to hear from you. To what extent are you financially connected? If you're a parent and you have adult kids between 18 and 34 and there's a degree of financial connectedness, I'd like to hear uh, to what extent and how that affects, if at all, the relationship that you have with your adult child. If you're in the age range of 18 to 34-year-olds and you have some degree of financial connectedness with your parents, I'd be interested in hearing what's involved with that, to what extent they help, and um, what, what, if any, effect you see that having on the relationship with your parents. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Kim, do we know if student loan repayment factors in at all to this financial assistance? You know, we don't know directly. We didn't ask the young adults or the parents to draw that direct connection, but we did look a lot at some of the milestones and the sort of financial circumstances that young adults are coming of age. And and one of the things we looked at was the level of student debt that today's young adults have versus young adults 30 years ago when their parents were around the same age. And it's much higher. Many more young adults have student debt and the level of debt is much higher. 
So I think that's got to be a factor because that's, you know, as we know, everyone's having to pay those loans back now. So, and we also know that your rents are higher than they've been in a long time. Mortgages are difficult to get. So I think all of those factors are probably contributing to the close financial ties that we see in the surveys. Also, people are delaying marriage or or getting married in lesser frequency than in the past. And I wonder how that factors in because it probably means fewer 18 to 34-year-olds are living in a dual-income household. And I I wonder if that—and I'm using the term marriage loosely. I mean, Mm -hmm. a live-together relationship, I should probably say. Say, um, where where you've got a dual income, probably fewer in that position than um, just a couple decades ago. Yes, absolutely. the 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 fall off in marriage rates among young adults have has been pretty substantial, and it's more that young adults are delaying marriage than foregoing it altogether. So it's just happening a lot later. But we compared that with 30 years ago when their parents were around the same age that young adults are today, and many fewer young adults are married, particularly in that 25 to 29 age range, there's been a significant drop off. And so you're right, fewer young adults are living in dual income households, and more young adults are actually still living with their parents. So that's a that's a big factor at play here as well. About a third of the young adults we interviewed said that they live in their parents' home. I wonder about cultural differences, too. Obviously, we have a higher percentage of immigrants in the United States than in the past. We also have many people, even if they're born here in the U.S., come from families uh, that recently arrived within a generation to the U.S. And, and there's certain cultural expectations around parenting and relationship with young adult kids. And I wonder if that factors in. I'm, I'm just thinking, for example, uh, for many Latino families, it's not uncommon for multi-generations to live on the same property, for kids to live longer at home, perhaps all the way up until they get married. And so are, are we seeing any of this interconnectedness that might have a, a cultural premise? Yes, I think that's an excellent question. And in the research that we've done more broadly on multi-generational households, we've definitely found that Hispanic and Asian Americans are more likely to live in multi-generational households. And I think there is a cultural element to that. The other thing we see in our data is that young men are more likely to live with their parents than young women. And there's an economic piece there too. So we know that young women today are outpacing young men in terms of educational attainment. Young men without a college degree have really struggled in the labor force. They've seen stagnant wages, less job opportunities. So there's a socioeconomic and a gender piece um, and an educational piece as well. So there's a lot of things kind of all wrapped up that are contributing to these trends. And related to that, I wonder if also because more women are in higher education, that increases the odds they won't continue to be living at home and um, versus a son. And and the other issue is I wonder if young women are uh, more comfortable taking a roommate to be able to live independently than perhaps young men. And young men are okay to, you know, move move back home uh, if they're in a, a place where they simply, you know, can't afford to live by themselves. Mm, that's an interesting thought. We didn't look at that specifically, but Um, We have done some other research where we've looked at people sort of partnering up or doubling up in housing um, living arrangements without being with a romantic partner, just roommates, in other words. But I can't remember what the gender breakdowns were on that. But that's an interesting theory. It's it's just Larry throwing out a, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> I just yeah. I just wonder is the, is the question. But I would love mm-hmm. to hear from listeners. We only have just a few minutes left here in our conversation with Pew Research Center's Kim Parker. Love to hear from you as an AirTalk listener. If you're a parent of an adult child and there's a financial connectedness with that young adult to sort of share with us, what, if any, effect that has? Does it, in fact, make you somewhat closer, do you think, and, and gives another reason to be in contact? Or is it a potential barrier because um, there's not full independence with both parties? If you're an adult uh, kid uh, who is still getting financial assistance from your parents, I'd like to hear from your perspective, how it affects the relationship. If it does, 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Kim, I, I, it always seems like with these Pew studies, which have such interesting results, they kind of suggest follow-up research. And I wonder if there are any things that have been identified out of this that you're particularly interested in pursuing. Mm, that's Oh, yes. You're, you're, um, you definitely are on to the Pew way of doing things because we sort of explore explore these questions, find some answers, and inevitably more questions arise. So there's there's definitely things. We've been exploring the parent-child relationship in different ways. So a year or two ago, we did a study looking at um, parents of minor children, so children zero to 18, what kind of challenges they're facing. Now we've looked at the parent-child relationship at this different stage of life. And one thing we're really interested in looking at going forward is looking at children of aging parents, so parents that are much older and how sort of the arc of that relationship changes when does the older parent become more dependent on their child who's probably a middle-aged adult and you know what are the financial and emotional ties look like at that stage of life as well. So kind of continuing to explore that full arc of the parent-child relationship is one thing that we're interested in. And we're also always interested in the gender differences that we see and, you know, kind of want to explore more about that and understand that a little bit better. Well, I have to say, I think you've got a great job, Kim. Uh, just, <laughs> I do, I do. I, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can tell. And I see why, because it would just be fascinating to be able to to be able to survey on all these different issues like you've done with this most recent one. A couple of surveys of young adults, 18 to 34, looking at the degree of connectedness and communication that they have with their parents, uh, about financial support, about uh, how they feel about the degree of connectedness that they've got a, a number of other fascinating findings of, about it. Kim Parker, Director of Social Trends Research at the Pew Research Center, thank you so much for joining us on Air Talk. Thank you so much, Larry. Appreciate it. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Catherine in Laguna Beach says, I have a 27-year-old college grad son who moved back in with me. It's not the most ideal situation. He gets help from me with things like car payments, but he says he's asking so that he can save money to actually move out, to be independent. Catherine, thank you so much. Melanie in Santa Clarita says, I have a couple kids who returned home after college. I'm eager for them to become independent, but I completely understand rents are impossibly high. The kids wish they could move out. They're frustrated. That's Melanie in Santa Clarita. Thank you so much for that. Coming up, we'll talk about what's happened with the fake images of Taylor Swift sexually explicit images that have have really galvanized her fans and supporters to try and fight back against them. 
We'll talk about whether this later, latest example of targeting uh, a woman's celebrity will bring about any change to these AI-generated deep fakes. We'll talk about it when we come back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Coming up, we'll talk with Time Magazine correspondent Simon Schuster about his new biography of Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. Simon's book is titled The Showman. That's coming up in just a few minutes. But we asked the question, could Taylor Swift and her tremendous fan base bring any sort of change to uh, quashing the pornographic deepfakes, which have for a number of years now been out, uh, particularly targeting women celebrities. You might have heard that there are a number of uh, explicit and abusive fake images of Swift that began circulating just last week on X, formerly known as Twitter, Over the weekend, X actually shut down the ability to search under Taylor Swift's name in an effort to control those deep fakes. And uh, now, effective today, you can search Taylor Swift's name on X, but the platform says it's doing its best to keep those explicit uh, fake images from coming up. Joining us to talk about how this, again, raises this issue to, to one of public concern is Loyola Law School professor Rebecca Delfino. Professor Delfino, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Larry. Happy to be here. I know this has been an area of legal specialty for you for some time. Um, beyond just getting additional attention to this this issue, um, is there any chance that given Taylor Swift's popularity that this could bring changes either to the law or to how platforms regulate the images? Well, that's a great question, Larry. And I think particularly because of her worldwide influence on this issue, uh, that there might be more energy generated both at the the state level and the federal level to address it. I mean, she has, as you mentioned, a huge fan base uh, that they have great influence um, over the public conversation. And Taylor herself could have great influence to keep moving forward some of the proposals that are are at the federal level but haven't either been introduced or haven't moved uh, all the way to through both the House and the Senate, and then also keep up the momentum at the states to address this issue that addresses many, many, many women and girls in addition to Taylor Swift. She, of course, has the financial resources to mount significant um, legal challenges. Is there any vulnerability on the part of platforms like X to a legal challenge if uh, one of the victims of these deep fakes decided to, to go after the platforms? Well, um, the the short answer is no. It's it's complicated, but platforms such as X typically are protected by Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, which shields them from liability um, for a, 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 a civil action that, that one might bring if they are actually in a jurisdiction that has an ability to bring a, a civil action directly linked to deepfakes. But even in the existing legal remedies, uh, in the space of, of tort law, uh, 
such as copyright, defamation, invasion of, of privacy, appropriation of likeness, or half a dozen of them, even in those instances, uh, the uh, X would be shielded uh, for the most part. Most victims of uh, deepfakes, currently their, their best opportunity if they are a celebrity is to actually make a complaint on the, under the Digital Millennium Millennial Copyright Act uh, that would be the primary mechanism mm. to get a website to to deplatform or remove uh, one of these images. So would that be the argument would be you've used my image, my my head, my face, and um, uh, on this fake image, and and that that is uh, an infringement in doing that. Well, it could be, but the 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 the. Who the allegation is going towards is really important here. So, so X, uh, I don't think there's any claim that that anyone at X or directly working for X generated these images. I haven't heard that. This would be someone else who then used that platform. They are the ones who contribute, uh, who who created it and initially distributed it. So, a claim initially would be any any civil action or any criminal action would be against the creator or distributor, and the intermediary in that instance is is X. And what, what's really interesting about uh, platforms such as X and, and Google and Facebook is, you know, they do have um, content moderating policies. They do have terms of service. And it's really leaning into those by victims that can get these platforms to take action and, re and remove uh, the content. So it's not so much bringing a claim per se against them, but it's using many of their existing policies, which prohibit this conduct in the first instance, getting them actually to act upon them. We're talking with Loyola Law Professor Rebecca Delfino, who's been writing and studying the legality of AI deepfakes and pornographic deepfakes for about the past seven years. Also with us, the founding director of UC Berkeley's Citrus Policy Lab, Brandy Nanaki, co-director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, where she leads the project on artificial intelligence, platforms, and society. Brandy, thank you very much for being with us. Um, with content moderation, at least at X, formerly Twitter, uh, being curtailed by uh, Elon Musk, what what does that mean as a practical matter for keeping these images from resurfacing when people search? Yeah, thank you so much for asking me this question about how can we actually achieve this technically. And as was mentioned by the prior guest right now, we have this challenge of actually enforcing so one option that we're exploring, and there's a bill proposed at the federal level um, that would help to aid this, is to actually create what we call cryptographic hashing. Now, that sounds really complicated, but essentially it's like a digital watermark that cannot be removed. It is intertwined into that AI-generated content. So anytime anybody were to create a piece of AI-generated content, it would have this tag on it. Now, the beautiful thing about that, having that tag, is that then platforms, as they're looking at content that's being uploaded, that could be a flag for them that, well, we're not making any value judgment necessarily on what the content is of that AI-generated image, but we're going to know that it was AI-generated, which means we could look into it. We could pull it to the side and maybe vet it before we distribute it. The second, and this was the problem with Taylor Swift, is essentially the genie is out of the bottle. Like Once it gets out there, it's really hard to rein it back in. So if you were to have these cryptographic hashes on that, you could look for that, those tags, 
those hashes and actually remove that content. And this isn't new. This isn't unprecedented. The platforms actually already do this in the terrorist space. So if they document terrorist content that's been hashed, they share it across their networks. Um, other platforms get those hashes as well. If it's found on X, then you know they share it with Instagram and they can remove that content. You know, there there might be some listeners who would say, as terrible as this is and disgusting as the practice is, that there's probably no way to totally um, stamp this out. And and that maybe we as a culture, since these are fake, it's not a, a real depiction of, of the artist or public figure, maybe, you know, we just, we'll just get inured to this and understand that these kinds of images aren't real. Do you think that that's where we're ultimately headed, Brandy? No, <laughs> and I definitely hope not. And, and first, um, the images are becoming more and more and more realistic. Um, they're out of what we call in the field the uncanny valley, where before you would look at an AI-generated video or image and you would say, oh, there's just something not right about that. You know, it just looks a little off. But it's, it's getting better and better and better. And people will be deceived. Now, I think, uh, you know, I'm a policy person, but tied very closely to policy is the technical implementation. So again, with the hashing, that would raise public awareness that that is an AI-generated image or video. And then second, as these models develop and become stronger, we can build in some of these safeguards so that they cannot generate that type of content. And actually, this is a raging debate right now in the AI development space, especially around whether or not we should make these types of models open or closed, right? Because if it's closed, we can put in some of those safeguards. If it's open, we run the risk of people being able to download these models locally onto their own computer or server and sort of reverse engineer out all of those safeguards. We're talking with Brandy Nanaki, who's the founding director of UC Berkeley's Citrus Policy Lab, co-director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Also with us, Loyola Law Professor and Specialist in Legality of AI and Deepfakes, Rebecca Delfino, with us as well. If you have questions for our expert guests, please join us at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Brandy, if this cryptographic hashing, as you mentioned, where there is uh, essentially uh, uh, a fingerprint on the uploaded image is to be required by social media platforms, um, would they have the technology to actually enforce that requirement? Uh, and if they did, would that then push these explicit deep fakes to um, less scrupulous platforms that might develop just to to have a market for them? Sure. I mean, that's the nature of the Internet. Let's be serious here. Uh, there, there will always be some entities to fill the void. But there is a coalition, there's an organization called C2PA, and that's the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity. And we already have some of the big developers signing on, Microsoft, Intel, Adobe. They have all signed on to say, look, we're going to try to figure out some standards of using these hashes. So it's, it's two-sided here. We need the developers to buy in to actually implement this when they're generating content, that they will put that fingerprint, that cryptographic hash on it. But at the same time, we need the platforms to also participate and to recognize 
those hashes when they're uploaded and to develop an entire governance mechanism, as was mentioned before, you know, terms of service. Uh, and the terms of services should say, if you're creating AI-generated content that's depicting someone in a non-consensual pornographic image, that is not allowed on our platform. And as was mentioned before, there are some states, including my very state, the state of California, that has a law in the books that gives somebody standing to sue if another person distributes a non-consensual deepfake pornographic image of them. And one other really quick thing, I'm also the host of a TV show and podcast called Tech Hype. And I sat down with Professor Hani Farid. He's one of the leading experts in the identification of digitally manipulated images. And he has been working in this space. And so I would love for listeners to check that out. We explain what the heck is a deep fake? How is it made? What are these cryptographic hashes? And is the future going to be bleak? Or can we use some of these technical mechanisms to remedy these problems? Yeah, and and, and I wonder if we're going to get to the point where there's AI that is able to detect the deep fake and immediately uh, identify that it's a fake and that yes. and that somehow we're takes already the, there. Okay. And that takes <laughs> we're the, already there. Yeah. the power out of what you're saying is this incredible accuracy. We're out of the uncanny valley now to make it really look like it's the person who, who is being artificially depicted. Then is there a way for that technology to sort of, uh, to label each and every one of these? Yes. Now, of course, there's some things like for you and me, we might look at an image that's been AI generated and it looks really realistic. You know, it makes sense to our eye. But if you look at it and you think about the physics of it and the lighting and the shading, you can develop a machine learning model, an image recognition system that can actually identify, no, there should be a shadow there given the move, you know, the placement of the arm over here. So you can actually use you know, it's kind of meta. You can use the machine mm -hmm. learning to uncover, you know, some of these these um, kind of glitches that would, you know, be a tell that it's actually AI generated. As you know, a societal thing, I think one of the things that's so strong about this is that Swift's fans have really rushed to her defense. And as uh, terrible as it has to be for someone who's targeted with these deep fakes to experience that, to see themselves depicted in that way, to have people standing behind you and who have your back, that's also got to be very gratifying. And a reminder for the people that aren't famous, the women and, and girls who might be targeted by this in their school community or elsewhere, how important it is to support them as they as they go through this and um, and 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 trying to help them go through what is obviously a terrible terrible experience. Thank you both so much for being with us, Brandy Nanaki of UC Berkeley Citrus Policy Lab that she founded and directs. Rebecca Delfino, Loyola Law Professor. Thank you both so much for joining us. It's Air Talk on LA, is eighty nine point three. Just ahead, Time Magazine correspondent Simon Schuster, who's been reporting from Ukraine. For for many years and um, got to know Volodymyr Zelensky when he was even a, a candidate for the Ukrainian presidency and was granted access to interview him about the Russian invasion and about the uh, evolving image of Zelensky. The new book by Schuster is The Showman. We'll talk with him about it when we come back in 90 seconds.
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by Time Magazine correspondent Simon Schuster, author of The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. Simon actually started covering the Ukrainian president before he was even president and uh, was able to follow the campaign which brought him to office and, of course, the transition of which we're all aware from uh, a popular comedian to um, an elected official who has had to lead his country in responding to an invasion by Russia. Simon, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be with you. So take us back to the campaign for office and and that uh, Zelensky compared to the man that we see today. How much difference is there? The difference is huge. I'd say he's, he's almost unrecognizable as the figure that I met in 2019 uh, backstage at his comedy show while he was running for president. You know, th- that was a, a, a very easygoing, kind of fun, charming um very charismatic, uh, happy-go-lucky guy. Um, and I think he was rather naive about, about how uh, difficult the challenges would be that he would face once, once he won the presidency. Uh, you know, now the, the figure we know is this, uh, this wartime leader who, you know, just has this steely expression. Um, he, he sort of em- embodies uh, his understanding of what a wartime leader must be. Um, and I think, you know, his, his legacy will be defined by that. But in, in my eyes, the, 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 tra- the transformation is, is the most interesting part of his story. You point out that his background is in Im- improv and that, in a sense, he's, he's acting out the role of the leader that he, he feels his country really needs to have in this crisis. And elaborate a bit on that, how you see him bringing those skills to the image that he's very carefully uh, crafted over his time in office. I mean, the first point I'd make is, is that no one is really prepared for the kind of situation he faced um, in February 2022. You know, being attacked by a nuclear power that wants to kill you and your family and take over your entire country, there isn't really a, a CV or a resume that prepares you for that kind of thing. Anyone thrust into that position would have to improvise, to think on their feet, to take on a new role, in many ways a new persona as a wartime leader. And President Zelensky, I think, had the the mental uh, agility and flexibility to, to do that in part because of his skills as an actor, which did force him 
um, you know, over the years to take on new roles uh, as, as an actor. You know, also he transitioned from from comedy to politics, also quite a stark change in his persona. Um, so, so I think that that kind of um, adaptability was really crucial and, and partly uh, earned through his years in entertainment. To what extent does he respond to public opinion, and and how closely do you do you think he's really got his finger on the pulse of his country? Yeah, that's that's, that's something that's been pretty consistent about him. You know, we, we talk about the, the wholesale transformation, but you know, he is very responsive to what he sees as his audience. So in, 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 the, in the current situation, that is all of Ukraine, the Ukrainian people. Um, and he is not ideological or dogmatic. Uh, you know, th- there isn't, um, I think, a position that he would cling to um, if he saw that the Ukrainian people were shifting. And that includes, you know, a, a possible negotiated end to the war. The thing is, the Ukrainian people, according to all the opinion polls, do not want to negotiate with Vladimir Putin's Russia. And he is, in many ways, following the will of the people in his very <clears throat> forceful and stubborn position that no negotiations. But I, I do think that he would shift if, if public opinion were to shift. We're talking with Simon Schuster, senior correspondent at Time, covering international affairs and has been a longtime journalistic presence in Ukraine. We're talking about his new biography, The Showman Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, how does Zelensky now look at his response pre-Russian invasion where he downplayed it and uh, seemed to be telling the rest of the world as well as, as his constituents that Russia would not be doing this? Does does he regret how he characterized things then? I, th- I think he does. You, you know, this, this is a line of questioning that tends to get his guard up and he gets rather defensive and often annoyed by, by this line of questioning. I mean, the, the fact is that this, this is a series of questions about why Ukraine wasn't better prepared, why the president didn't warn uh, or didn't expect the invasion, didn't warn his people that it was coming. Um, you know, these are questions that he will have to answer. You know, they come up in, in interviews, and he does provide you know, a, a series of kind of stock answers by now. But I think that, you know, the real national reckoning over those questions is yet to come. It's been delayed uh, in the context of the full-scale war but, you know, if you talk to people in Ukraine, it, it comes up a lot around the kitchen table. Like, why why weren't we better prepared? The uh, mayor of, of Kiev uh, has been critical of President Zelensky, uh, saying that um, he's taking the country in an authoritarian direction. What are some ways that Zelensky has attempted to tamp down criticism of his administration and his approach to uh, the war with Russia? Well, before the invasion started, about a year before the invasion, he shut down three television channels <clears throat> that he felt were well, th- these were Russian propaganda channels, essentially. They were they were owned and operated by allies of the Kremlin. And he felt that those channels were a threat to Ukrainian sovereignty, indeed its existence uh, as a state. Um, so he uh, shut them down in a very controversial move. Um, and that really infuriated, infuriated Putin and his allies uh, inside Ukraine, Putin's allies. Um, after the invasion started, it's a totally different picture. So once the invasion is underway, Zelensky uh, imposed martial law. Under martial law, the, the president has uh, you know, f- full powers to rule by decree. Uh, democracy is put on hold. 
and the airwaves, so all broadcast media, are put in the service of national defense. So the state has the right to essentially broadcast wartime propaganda through those channels, and Zelensky has been doing that. He is fully within his rights. Um, you know, I, I wonder how the transition will look at the end of the war, you know, in terms of returning back to democracy as usual. Um, you know, that, that is often, uh, in, in, you know, history shows that's a, usually a fraught transition, and I think it will be also a fraught one for Zelensky. His uh, rhetoric is very clear. He's not looking at negotiations that would cede any portion of what uh, he considers to be Ukraine to Russian control, uh, the Donbass or Crimea or or, or elsewhere. Uh, so what what you know? Do you think that he would soften on that stance um, if the potential for for peace could be attained through giving up something? Well, in, in public and in private, he refuses to countenance such a move. And I'd point out again that the Ukrainian people do not want to trade their land for peace, according to you know consistent uh, opinion polling. Um, if if those uh, if if the will of the people changes, I think he would adjust. Like, like I said, um, you know. Also, we don't know where this war is going to go. You know, this war has taken a lot of hairpin turns. The Ukrainians have surprised us. In some ways, the Russians certainly have surprised us. So it, I, I don't, I don't discount the possibility that that uh, Zelensky will shift to a message, you know, more open to negotiations. But right now, that is nowhere on the horizon. Not in his public remarks, and not in his private conversations with his aides. We'll continue our conversation with Time Magazine correspondent Simon Schuster, author of *The Showman*. Inside the invasion that shook the world and made a leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. We'll be back with more conversation with the senior correspondent at Time in just one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle with Time Magazine senior correspondent Simon Schuster. He has covered international affairs for a number of years for Time and is author of The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. Simon, what were those days like uh, early on in the Russian invasion? Zelensky is in a bunker uh, you know, trying to get information about what's happening. What, what is that experience like for him and those closest to him? It was quite terrifying, as, as you can imagine. Um, you know, they, they were in this uh, facility that was built in the Soviet days, underground, deep underground. It looks a bit like a, a subway tunnel, uh, redesigned to, to function as an office building um, with these little rooms and a small conference room where which became kind of the epicenter of his life, um, he communicated with the world and in many ways experienced the war through his screen down there, the screen of his phone, the screen of his computers. That's that's how he was getting updates about the situation at the front. Um, you know, it was it was a very uh, cramped facility. It, it often felt, as one aide described it, as a like a submarine in enemy waters, you know, very, very tense, um, cramped quarters, uh, but also a, a great sense of com camaraderie and, and common purpose among the people who live down there with the president. 
what is this like for the first lady of Ukraine? You know, marrying a man who's who's a comedic actor and not a political figure decides to run for office, is elected, and then uh, full on war occurs with the Russian invasion and response. So how has she reacted to essentially being married to a different person? Well, she did try to talk him out of running for president. Uh, she was not a supporter of that idea. She she knew that it would be an enormous you know, uh, blow and, and, and uh, uh, impose a lot of strain on their marriage. Um, but he didn't listen to her advice. Uh, and he went ahead with it anyway. So the book chronicles in some detail also her experience of the transition to politics, you know, being forced in many ways to play the role of first lady, how she resisted it at first. And and then, you know, during the, the full-scale invasion, once once the Russian bombs began falling on Kiev, you know, she had to transition. First of all, she went into hiding with the children. So she was not in the bunker with the president. She and the children, they they went into, uh, into hiding a series of safe houses. They were moving around within Ukraine, uh, among these safe houses. But eventually, about uh, two months into the invasion, she emerged and began to play a very prominent and, and effective role as a as a voice for Ukraine on the international stage as, as a diplomat. And she still continues to play that role very well. Russia has been quite successful in carrying out uh, assassinations of, of dissident figures. To, what are some of the ways, uh, obviously, we, you know, we wouldn't have, be privy to much of it, but just some examples of how they're trying to keep Zelensky safe from an assassination? Oh, that that is a the, the, his bodyguards have a very tough job um, because the president has an extremely high tolerance for for risk and physical danger, and he sees it as part of his uh, his role, his image as a wartime leader to demonstrate to his people that he is risking his own neck because he's asking for for them, the people of Ukraine, to risk a lot, to sacrifice a lot. So he's always putting himself on the line. I mean, some, while following him around, you know. We went uh, we went very close to the front lines within easy snipers shooting range of of uh, Russian positions, certainly within artillery range. And he had a habit of not wearing bulletproof vest or a helmet in those situations. So yeah, that that's kind of his somewhat cavalier attitude toward his own personal security, and and it drives his bodyguards nuts. Hmm. You know, he he was his approval ratings were um, comparatively low. Prior to the invasion, he saw a tremendous spike as the nation uh, largely unified uh, for the war effort. Now his approval is, has gone down. What's the biggest critique that people have of him? Um, yeah, so now we're talking, it, it's fallen from around 90% uh, in March 2022, the, the first month of the invasion. Now it's down to about 60%. Uh, approval. So he's still very popular. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, uh, widely respected and revered by by his people. But that is a that is a sharp drop. Um, the main thing is, I, I think a lot of people are frustrated with the war generally, and 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 uh, in particular, perhaps Zelensky's handling of it, his 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 failure to adequately prepare that comes up a lot, you know, also issues of issues of corruption. Um, uh, often, you know, in relation to military recruitment, the fact that wealthier people in Ukraine are able to buy their way out of military service, uh, while the poorer people um, end up having to to serve on the on the front lines, that causes a lot of irritation, and you know, it inevitably uh, reaches up into the office of the president and affects Zelensky's personal ratings. 
what led him to decide to run for for the presidency? Yeah, good question. He didn't have a very solid or convincing answer when I first put that question to him when he was on the campaign trail. Um, you know, he was very uh, disaffected and 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 frustrated with Ukraine's leaders, as were many Ukrainians, um, the leaders who preceded him. He thought he could do a better job. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, many of his friends in the, the circle around him were egging him on and, and uh, urging him to give it a give it a shot. And, and uh, he wanted to try he, he couldn't be much more specific than that when, when I asked him. <laughs> uh, he uh, has tremendous antipathy, of course, towards Russia. And you write about him him really wanting the, the country of Ukraine to distance itself from the Russian control and influence of the past. How does he deal with that with the portion of, of Ukraine that has pro-Russian sympathies? Yeah, I, I'd push back on that a little bit. I, I think, you know, historically there there was a constituency inside Ukraine for pro-Russian political parties. Um, that They existed uh, and were quite successful in politics in Ukraine right up until the full-scale invasion. These days, I would say the political or the Russian political project in Ukraine is dead. I, I don't think that there there is a pro-Russian politician now after all the atrocities Russia has committed uh, a politician who could succeed on a pro-Russian platform. Um, but, uh, you know, Zelensky um, is himself a, a, a native Russian speaker. I, I think his his highest um, his highest uh, voter turnout, his highest approval traditionally, um, was among the, the Russian-speaking regions of the country in the East. Hmm. So, you know, he, he, he enjoys broad support, you know, okay. among, yeah, a, a, a large spectrum of, of the population, including Russian speakers. Rush, uh, Simon Schuster, thank you so much for talking about uh, your biography of Volodymyr Zelensky. The Showman is the book. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate thank it. You. Simon thank Schuster, you. Time Magazine correspondent, his book, The Showman. And uh, Justin Chang, one of our uh, wonderful Film Week critics, uh, has just tweeted, I can't believe I'm typing this. I'm joining The New Yorker as a film critic starting February 12th. Couldn't be more excited. Justin Chang to The New Yorker. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events.